Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with BC's reopening plan announced earlier this week by Premier John Horgan. We're going to focus on long-term care here in a moment, but first have a listen to Horgan here outlining the philosophy behind this restart plan. BC's safe restart plan will be guided by safely reopening businesses, resuming activities, and returning to normal life over four steps. Now, we won't be doing this all at once. We will be doing it slowly based on where the science takes us, ensuring all the while that we put safety first. Okay, John Horgan speaking earlier this week about the reopening plan in British Columbia. What about long-term care? So many people have been separated from their loved ones. How does the opening plan, the reopening plan, affect long-term care facilities? Let's discuss now with my guest, Brenda Brophy. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. She is an advocate for family members and long-term care residents, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Brenda. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you for coming on. Let's just quickly remind the, the listeners, Brenda, of your mom. I think she just, what is she, 100 now or 101? What was her birthday? She, she just turned 101 in Wow. April. Wow, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, what a rock star, hey? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And I know that she was in long-term care, and I know you were so frustrated in being separated from her. You were able to bring her home, and I, it sounds like she's doing a lot better at home than when she was in long-term care. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, she's, yeah. she's absolutely doing better at the same time. That separation between um, you know, having the families locked out, I was um, what would be deemed as an essential care provider. I was with my mom nearly every day ensuring the most simplest of things were done that there's you know there's a huge gap in the care that's provided and you know 3.37 hours or whatever they tell you never happens so out of necessity I cared for my mom and then when I was locked out her cognitive function her weight everything declined dramatically and I was unable to get access to her to go in on a regular basis so um, you know it's a long story but one that families all over the province have faced um, but here we are 16 months later. It might have been understandable at the beginning, but I am absolutely incensed listening to this plan that there, it's typical of what we've done. Ageism at its, at its finest. This phased restart plan is hailed as the light at the end of the tunnel. You can have normal life. You can hug again. And yet there was no mention of long-term care visitation restrictions. And people just seem to think that that's all going really well right now. And I promise you, it is not. I heard from yeah. a daughter just yesterday who said, why do I still have to book an appointment to see my mother who pays to live in her home in your facility or in this facility um, and then be told that I can only stay for 60 minutes? Yeah, and sometimes they pay a lot. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not, it's not intended to be a prison. And Minister Dick yeah. likes to get on and, and give this empathy that he knows very well the struggles he has, I believe, a mother in long-term care. Well, he probably has had better access than what any of our, our families have had, because let's face it, you know, they're probably going to treat him a little bit differently or anybody that's going to be very, you know, much in the spotlight. But he can give all the empathy he wants. And as he said to you on Tuesday when I asked the question, telling families that there'll be something soon. Yeah. I waited all last year being told every day they were working on it. And I, I know and believe that they always understood or knew that they wouldn't open up visitation until the residents were vaccinated, which has been true. 
Had I known that and been given real information long before, like last summer, last spring, I would have moved my mom out. But I kept hanging on that hope that they would, right. of course, they're going to they're going to open up. They're going to do something sensible. And here we are. Vaccinations are in arms. He says it's making a difference in long term care. And yet they don't even mention it in the plan. And, and it's just unbelievable that we're still here in this place and families want information. Base it on the metrics. Tell us the science. Where do we need to be? But give families hope through real information. Don't give us rhetoric and tell us that soon. What the hell is soon? Okay, Brenda Brophy is my guest. She's Brenda's a tireless advocate for the families of long-term care residents. And Brenda, you mentioned that Adrian Dix was my guest here on the show earlier this week, and I'm I'm very pleased you were able to get through to him on the open line during that segment and ask him a question that you just referenced. And I want to play that now here for the listeners. So here you are uh, asking Adrian Dix, the health minister, what's going on here? Have a listen. Families of people in long-term care want to visit uh, their loved ones more, want to have free access. There is access, in-room access now, and that was a big change. And we're going to do what we've done in every other uh, matter, which is to move carefully and step by step to so make sure when, people are protected. When it's could be super pe- important? Soon. When when I, could I, people I expect soon. full access? I would say soon, uh, Mike. But again, what we're what we're doing now is finishing in long term care because of the extraordinary risks there that has been well documented. We don't have to explain that. Uh, we're we're moving right now through second doses. Okay, that's uh, Adrian Dix, Health Minister Adrian Dix, responding to your question, Brenda, and I tried to pin him down a little bit there about it precisely when uh, families would get full access. So when he says soon, what like what does that mean to you? Have you been able to get any more clarification on that? <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. And again, mm-hmm. I for one, and I know I am not alone, as I said, I, I started a group. We have over 300 members in, in our group, all facing the same restrictions. All last year, <clears throat> I used to listen every single day waiting for news something some resemblance of you are coming to your senses my mom is going to die she's declining every day as are many other residents for strictly from the social isolation and you can imagine many of them were locked up in their rooms for weeks at a time so anyone who has an has an elder especially with dementia knows the impacts of that and we were never given information dr henry while i respect you know the job she has done I do not believe that they have done the best for our seniors in care. They say they've saved them from COVID, but they're ignoring the fact of the decline and death that wouldn't have happened otherwise from non-COVID related issues to do with the social isolation and lack of care from their family that used to be in every single day. And she always said, we're working on it. And that was simply not true. And they never gave information and they refused to address the report of the seniors advocate. Came out November 3rd, three recommendations. Isabel McKenzie is, you know, a hero in my opinion, but they continuously ignore her. They never, ever talked about that report, and they still don't talk about the report. If nothing else, start the Family Council Association. Do something, but stop the insanity. So soon is an insult to these families that have paid the biggest price through the pandemic, and they themselves will tell you that, give you a bunch of empathy, but not give information. Tell us where the metric is. At what point in the phase do you anticipate that you will change things? Don't say soon. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about long-term care and BC's reopening plan. My guest is Brenda Brophy. She's an advocate for families of long-term care residents. Lots of calls here. Let's go right to the Maria in Burnaby. Hi. Oh, hi, Mike. Um, My mom's been in long-term care for just under a year, and during that time they had two outbreaks and four separate occurrences of COVID. Luckily, my mom did not catch it, but I 
believe there was about 60 residents that passed away during this time. Beginning at Christmas time, we were giving um, we were given the allowance to come into the home and see her as essential visitors. And first, it was right. one person, yeah. and I begged them, "Can it be my dad? Can it be my brother, my sister?" So we, actually, all of us see see her. But when we did finally did see her, the deterioration that happened, um, like over the six months that we weren't able to see her, was was unbelievable. It was terrible it was bad for my dad which made him feel just as worse as everyone else and there were resources that we noticed there there were more care aids they were the same care aids that were there they weren't going from home to home right, but right. now that i would say that it's a clean long-term care home uh, no covid no no instances of that they're back to less staff so we notice we're walking down the halls, the doors are closed where they used to be open. And so they close the doors to make sure they kind of, everyone, the residents stay in their rooms and don't get out and about. And the whole thing's a mess is what I'm trying have you, to say. Have you been able to get more access to your mom recently? I would say yes. And I was able to bring, they have something called social visits. And right, so I was right. able to bring my cousin, uh, and uh, just recently, but for the most part, no more than 60 minutes. And yeah. um, they say you can take them out, but when you bring them back in, they have to strip down, change out of their clothes, get those clothes washed. It is better, but I have other friends who have uh, family members in long-term care homes in Vancouver, and they haven't seen their family members at all. They're completely locked out. So I don't understand the inconsistency why are okay. some care homes allowed and others aren't? And it has nothing to do with the, um, the, the, the specific regional health authority. Yeah. It's not like it's different in Vancouver Health and different in Fraser Health, I believe. I'm not sure. Okay, Brenda, or, uh, Mar Maria, thank you for sharing your story. I hope you're fully reunited with your mom very, very soon. C Brenda, can you comment on that? Like, it does seem to be, the rules seem to be inconsistently applied between among different facilities. Yeah, and, and thanks, Maria, for sharing your story. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you at least had a care home that was willing to allow not only one essential visitor, but more than that. So, you know, there are some care homes that are doing a good job. Um, but there has been inconsistencies right from the start. And you'll listen to families, and I hope that this story never goes away until we have a full investigation of what's been allowed to continue. The essential visitor is a good example. You know, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry always allowed it from the beginning. But the problem is it's always been left to the facilities to decide how they implement these guidelines. It's not that you're ordered to do things. So, you know, you get care home to care home, they can be very different. And it's also yeah. why families are afraid to speak out is because they face retaliation. And that is a real concern. And it happens. So the inconsistencies right now, Bonnie Henry directed that it should be a minimum of 60 minutes. What did that do? It gave the facilities the ability to say it's a 60-minute it's a visit. So they didn't right, care that right. that was a minimum. They And what is the difference? Once you have come into the facility and you're with your loved one, the COVID risk of exposure is no no greater if you're there for three hours than if you're there for 60 minutes. They know, you know this shouldn't have to be shuttling you back and forth to the room or to an area. You do the same as everyone else. You are screened, you have PPE, and you agree to abide by the rules. So, again, the inconsistencies are one of the most frustrating things. And I hear from a lot of people that are saying, their care homes are doing great, and then I hear just the most draconian restrictions that you can imagine, even okay. to the point where, you know, it may not even be allowed in room, and that's perfectly acceptable when there's private rooms. Let's go to another call here. Anne on the line of White Rock. Go ahead, Anne. 
Hi. Yes, Hi. I totally agree with what Brenda's saying. My father-in-law lived in a care facility here. My husband was his primary caregiver, but for a long period was not even allowed to visit him. And then in the last, um, he saw him, uh, he passed in March of this year. So for that whole year, it wasn't until the last month he was allowed to visit him in person in a location downstairs for a half an hour. And the rest of the family were not allowed to. And the day before he passed was the first time that I had seen him um, since wow. February of, of, two, of uh, 2000 and whenever it started. And I, we just found that the care facility here, which is a national care facility, just really used Fraser Health as a, as a shield to keep the family away and not, bend, not, not accommodate us. And, uh, you know, it really was, it, it was very sad for somebody who was 98 not to see his grandchildren or his daughter and son. Only one, one child was allowed. And no matter how much we advocated, they would not, they would not accommodate us. And like you said, then we, we worried about his care because we didn't want it, want them taking it out on him. But um, I really appreciate what Brenda's saying. And uh, it has been very frustrating. It's very sad to see somebody in their last years of their life be be without family because he always said i never want to be without my family and uh, And thank you thank you for sharing that story i'm sorry very sorry for your loss uh we got just but sadly we just got 30 seconds here brenda it sounds like i don't know i've talked to people if if, like you you briefly referenced this but if you try to push back uh, sometimes the care homes thinks like okay now you're a troublemaker so, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I face that myself. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's a real concern. And that's a lot of the times where and I hear I've actually heard um, from a couple of reporters and they say that they get these stories. But then the person is too scared to speak openly and publicly sure. about it. And and that's why nothing changes. And that's that's um, that's the really sad part about this. And, okay. and why are we why are we allowing this to continue? Okay, Brenda, I really salute your courage on speaking out on this one the way you have. And it's always great to have you on here. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Let's keep the uh, let's keep the focus. Let's not let them off the hook. The police are in the street before the people's will. Okay, you heard some sound there from the barricades in the Ferry Creek area. Anti-logging protesters have flooded into this region on southern Vancouver Island protesting old-growth logging in that area. Wow, I'll tell you what, this is a standoff that is escalating here. You've got more than 130 arrests so far. More arrests very likely here. Tactics escalating as well. It's almost like kind of guerrilla tactics by the protesters there through a very large area. Police setting up some checkpoints, not letting media in. This thing is getting wild there in the woods on Vancouver Island. We've got some great guests coming up to talk about this, including Adam Olson, uh, Green Party MLA. Have a listen to this here first. Here's Adam Olson uh, talking about the logging of old growth trees in the BC legislature just the other day. Have a listen. Unfortunately, while the talking continues, the logging continues. And those trees, those monumental trees, are the ones that are being cut first, Mr. Speaker, because they're the ones that the forestry industry sees as the most valuable. They're the ones that they want access to. So while we talk in this place, we log. And those trees are the ones that are falling first. Mr. Speaker, this government is getting a failing grade from the lack of action so far on old growth, from both environmental groups that the minister talked about and conservationists. Okay, it's Green Party MLA Adam Olson speaking in the legislature, and Adam Olson joins me now. Adam, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk about this dispute right now and your concerns. What what are your uh, what are your concerns here right now? 
Well, I, I think that uh, the, the biggest concern that I have at this moment is that we have a BC NDP majority government that's largely sitting on the sidelines and, and allowing uh, the, uh, the the situation to erode uh, in the forests on southern Vancouver Island. Uh, and they could uh, be taking a leadership role, stepping in, implementing the recommendations of their old growth review panel, including recommendation number six, which was uh, to uh, very specifically to defer development in old uh, forests where ecosystems are at very high risk and near-term risk of irreversible biodiversity loss. That's the exact language in the report that they were that the BCNDP received last uh, last year. They've been sitting on that report, and instead of uh, deferring uh, the cutting and 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 allowing the situation to um, to settle down, uh, they sit on the sidelines in silence and allow the RCMP, or where the RCMP is now in charge of enforcing an injunction. Uh, and uh, the situation, as you've uh, quite rightly uh, articulated this morning, is continuing to escalate. And uh, it's a lack of leadership of this government. It's a lack of willingness to uh, follow through on their election commitments that they made last fall to all British Columbians. Uh, and it's not just the people in the forests, Mike, that are becoming more and more frustrated. It's the emails the tone in the emails, the tone in the phone calls. We had 6,000 emails into my constituency office last week. Uh, I have a constituency assistant that wow. could be doing nothing more than just focused on this uh, issue alone. And uh, there's many other issues, as you know. So. Okay, Adam, what about the, the Pachidat First Nation here and their wishes and desires? This is a First Nation that has been logging in that area for, who knows, millennia perhaps, and They've got three sawmills there. They've got people working in the woods. The revenue from the logging activity is absolutely crucial to this this small community. I mean, you're an you're an indigenous man yourself, an indigenous leader. What about their what about their their wishes? They support the logging here. They're they're getting revenue from it. They've asked the protesters to leave, and the protesters are ignoring them. Well, I think it's important not to pretend to to ensure that we're not pretending like the only economic development opportunities is falling trees. There's a lot of economic development opportunities, as Premier John Horgan even said, the trees, uh, specifically these uh, monumental old growth, uh, these massive ancient trees are worth more standing. And there's certainly ways for them to be able to realize that. I think that it's important to acknowledge that economic development uh, in our province um, and Indigenous involvement in that economic development has largely been predicated on agreeing with what the provincial government's priorities are. Provincial government steps forward and says, we want to cut these trees. Do you want to be a part of it? That has been the relationship. That's been my experience with how the provincial government approaches Indigenous nations and gets them involved. Uh, in the in the the resource extraction uh, activities that the province well, is interested in, I think that the provincial government needs to take advantage of the federal funds that have been put in place through this past budget, two point three billion dollars for protected areas. We need to meet the goals of twenty five percent protected areas by twenty twenty five, and we could be using these funds for indigenous protected and conservation areas, similar to what the previous BC Liberal government did. In the Great Bear Rainforest, we have an example of this in our province, and currently the BC NDP government is choosing to sit on the sidelines and allow the tensions to flare up. Well, it, though I've festival. I've spoken to some of the Pachidat leadership on this issue over the past few days, and, and I know you've you've talked to them in the past as well, and they will say that 
you're talking about maybe they they have some sort of diversified economy. There are there are other options. The fishing has gone to gone to pot. There's 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 not much they're getting from fishing anymore. They've tried to diversify with tourism. They've had a little bit of success there. It's not enough. I mean, the logging and the forestry that's going on there. You know you know darn well that it is absolutely crucial to this community. They got three sawmills. They use the revenue from forestry to sustain some of the. The minimal community services they got going there, like a small grocery store and a gas station, a lot of that is flowing from the forestry that's going on in, in the woods. And you're saying, what, shut, shut it down? Like, what are they supposed to do? Well, uh, what I'm saying is, that, so, so, I mean, I think that the reality is, is that it gets shut down anyway, doesn't it, Mike? Because once you cut down these last remaining monumental old growth forests, there's nothing more to cut down. The sawmills stop sawing the logs because there's no more logs to there's saw. second there's second and third there's second and third growth there's second and third growth forest in there too but that's is, not what those sawmills are tooled for this let, is a very small part of that watershed that's got old growth that they're harvesting so so then let's talk about and and let's talk about the old growth then yeah let's not be distracted by the second and third growth uh, as as you wanted us to do let's focus on the old growth because sure the the the, the uh, experts are telling us, and the experts produced maps last week to show how little of the monumental old growth, the, the the trees that everybody's talking about right now, how few they are remaining. We're not talking about decades more of cutting these trees. We're talking about a couple of years. So the, the, it is incumbent upon the provincial government, and it's incumbent upon uh, well, it's incumbent upon the provincial government to have a plan that goes past those few years. Because the reality is, is that all of the arguments that are being made around, uh, uh, around the industry are that this industry goes away in a few years anyways because we don't have any more of these trees to come. But, but so when really we're talking about just raising the last remaining old growth, uh, monumental old growth, and then being exactly in the position that we're in right now, what we're suggesting is let's get on with the transition Let's protect yeah. these areas. Let's, let's leverage these areas for the economic development that comes through tourism where people want to come and see these trees but, and visit these trees because that's also what's happening. Okay, but Adam, as an, as an indigenous leader yourself, what do you say to the leadership of this First Nation that have made it very clear through the elected chiefs, through the hereditary chiefs, that they don't want these protesters there? They have asked them very politely to leave do you not first support? All, do you suggest, not support this First all, Nation? Well, I would suggest that you're simplifying a very complex situation when you frame it that way, because I wouldn't suggest that there is full agreement in that community. I'm not getting. I didn't say there's full agreement. I said business. the the but elected chief and is, the hereditary chief have asked them to leave. Well, and there are elders in that community that dispute that. I would just say, and and that's the case all across the province. It's precisely the reason why spent the last three years in the legislature focusing on developing the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act and demanding that the right. provincial government puts an action plan in place, because these are the complexities that we've inherited over many, many uh, decades of, of governance in this province. What I would say is that when you're talking about the last remaining stands of trees that are 1,000 and 2,000 years old, from my perspective, it doesn't matter who's cutting them. We need to provide other economic opportunities if that's the frame that we're having the conversation in. And the provincial sure. government has the resources and the tools at their disposal. $2.3 billion of federal money put on the table to preserve 
and conserve areas exactly like the ones that we're talking about. And if there were economic opportunities for those Indigenous nations to preserve those areas rather than to cut those areas, then let's put that on the table as an option. Because currently right now, and in the frame that you're putting in on around this, that those conversations aren't even able to happen. So let's, let's put that on the table. Let's say, look, instead of cutting, we could conserve. Instead of cutting, we could create another economic um, opportunity for these areas for visitors to come and visit these right. most ancient creatures on the planet. Uh, the, the thing that's driving so much passion for people, not only in, in uh, you know, the communities of Vancouver and Victoria and the urban centers, yeah. but also in Indigenous communities. Okay. There's a lot of sadness in our communities about this and about how uh, economic development has happened over the years. And I think this provincial government owes it uh, to the people of British Columbia to take advantage of the money that the federal government's put on the table, create conservation financing, to give real opportunities to talk about economic development. Okay. Not in the frame of, hey, this is what we want to have the conversation on, cutting these trees down. But to say to Indigenous nations, here and all across the province, what kind of economic development do you want to engage in? And you know what? Guaranteed, they're gonna, there's going to be nations that engage in economic development that I don't like mm-hmm. or that I don't agree with. And we'll have that conversation. We'll do it in a mature way. Okay. But I think that it's, it's important that the right. options be put on the table and not the argument put forward like this is the only thing that we can do is cut these last remaining trees. Okay. Because well, they're not. Well, they're not the last. They're not the last remaining trees. There, there's a ton of old growth that's protected in that area. I, I mean, there, are, there are ancient, untouched watersheds just down the highway at Pacific Rim National Park that'll never be logged. So it's, it's not we're the last. It's not the last stand, Mike. But we're talking about three percent. I understand. But when you say it's the well, when you say these are the last trees, they're not the last trees, and you know it. But. I, I do. Appre- I do. Listen, I got to move on, but I appreciate you coming on, Adam, and I'll have you back. I, I can guarantee you that. That's Adam Olson, Green Party. Thank you, Adam. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the standoff over old growth logging in the Ferry Creek watershed near Victoria on Vancouver Island. Had over 130 arrests there so far. More arrests, no doubt, on the way. You heard my interview there with Green Party MLA Adam Olson. He wants this logging shut down. Let's check in with Chris Sankey now. Chris is the president of the Blackfish Group of Companies. He's an indigenous business leader. He's a former elected councillor with the Laxqualam First Nation and Prince Rupert. Hey, Chris. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on. I know you heard. I know you. Thank you for being here. I know you heard my interview there with Adam Olson. What do you think about this dispute? Well, it's 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 utter nonsense. Uh, if Mr. Olson just did a little bit of research, that he'd know the permitting is in that Ferry Creek, and that if if, if there was to be old growth cut, it would be used only for ceremonial or cultural purposes. But that's not what they're cutting. Um, it's crazy that uh, we're allowing this to continue to happen. It's a contribution to the division of that community. Like I, I really feel for the Pachidar right now because they're going to take years to recover from this dispute. Uh, clearly, uh, no one's listening to them. Uh, they've come together as hereditary and as elected official. Uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago they brought one elder on the, the news, typical of what these NGOs do, and they speak to one band member. This morning, I was watching a 50-year-old white woman talk about how the Pachida wasn't, weren't, wasn't consulted. That's just ludicrous. Again, a non-Indigenous person, middle-aged, white person, speaking for us. 
And if Mr. Olson actually understood his protocol, he'd understand and respect the values and the cultures of the community. But clearly, it's about the party narrative. Uh, this has been going on way too long. Uh, and for those uh, individuals that are protesting, perhaps from the community, uh, that's going to be a lonely, lonely road for you. I've seen it in the Wet'suwet'en. I've seen it in our own communities on the north coast here with the coast in Shan. Uh, they come in and they completely cause division. And I'm telling you right now, today, those those relationships have been damaged. And it'll be a long time before they're repaired. Mr. Olson talked about tourism. Did he not just yeah. hear the community say that they've tried and it does not work for them? And now, when I read what they were doing down there, they, in all accounts, they're doing it responsibly. Isn't that what UNDRIP is talking about? Yeah. If they're going to continue to allow this to happen, why even have Bill C-15? They're living up to what Bill 15 is supposed to mean. Yeah, the uh, UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, the MLA, Adam Olson, and the Green Party, big supporters of that. And it's been passed by the provincial government as well. Yeah, it's interesting that some of the fiercest supporters of UNDRIP, if, if, here you have a First Nation uh, supporting logging they don't agree with, and then they want the logging shut down. Does that go against the United Nations Declaration, in your opinion? 100%. What's the point of having UNDRIP? You might as well just take that bill and tear it up. Is this what it's going to come to, is that we're going to listen to these uh, these foreign-funded groups go in there, uh, pretend to speak for all of us, latch on to a small group of people, and then try to say that all of us are against these developments? Uh, look, I, uh, if the Apache.com people are listening, there's one thing I know about our people. We may go to war. We may have disagreements. We may not see eye to eye on things. But when we're attacked, we stand together. There are thousands of Indigenous people that stand with Apache.com, and they're fed up with this. We may not be in the mainstream media, but I'm telling you, the on the ground, it is brewing, and people are tired of it. And as British Columbian and as a Canadian, this is not who we are. Look, let me tell you something. When, these, when this is all said and done, when they take the economic opportunities away from our people, our people got to go back and regroup and find a way to support our, our, our communities, which is next to impossible. While these protesters go back to their beachfront properties, their lovely warm homes, enjoying what life has given them, a life that so many Indigenous people only ever dreamt about. But I, I tell you, more and more Indigenous people are standing up. The quiet majority has had, has had enough. I think the quiet majority of British Columbians and Canadians have had enough, and no one's listening at, at all. So why even have Bill C-50? Why? If this okay. is what this is going to come to, Mike, why even have it? Let's tear that bill up right now if they can't respect it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berries, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Are you in the market for a new or used car? Oh, man, it is a jungle out there. Demand is up. Supply, well, not keeping up. Guess what's happening to prices? Yeah, prices going up, it appears. Check out some of these stats on auto sales across the country. According to the DeRosier's Automotive Consultants Group and their estimates, in the month of April, Canadian auto sales are up 254% compared to the same month last year. That's when sales plunged due to lockdown during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. You take a look at this now. Month of April, Canadian auto sales, 162,000 units, up from just 45,000 units in April of 2020. New car sales, yeah, really hot right now. It appears to be a red-hot market for used vehicles as well. Hearing from listeners on that. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Varaf Baliwala. Varaf is a consumer advocate. He's a car-buying expert with Automall Network. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Varaf, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's good to hear from you. Okay, Varaf, yeah, it's been a while, man. It's, okay, it sounds like it's crazy out there. What's going on? Well, the, the used car market certainly has uh, gone crazy for sure. Um, a lot of that is due to these uh, chip shortages that you may have heard about. So it's affecting a lot of the new car deliveries. There's, uh, although new car sales are up from last year, they're still way down from last year or from the year before, and, uh, and they're having availability issues. So a lot of people who are trying to get new cars right now, especially, are having a very difficult time. And, uh, and so they're moving towards the used car market. Supply, uh, demand is up. Supply is up. So therefore, supply is, uh, is limited. So therefore, prices are going crazy. Okay, so prices are going up. So when it comes to used car, now I have heard about this chip shortage. Can you, what's, what's going on there? So a lot of the newer vehicles are are, are based they're they're, technolo- they're technology heavy right and yeah. so that technology is based on these semiconductor chips uh, that are required and so whenever you have a, a, a semiconductor shortage because there's been some um, uh, some fires and whatnot in Japan uh, and other areas where they make these uh, these uh, chips um, therefore they can't make the cars because they don't have the parts. Okay, so that's created a that's created a crunch in the new car market, and if people can't get the new vehicle that they want, they may be thinking about a used vehicle. So you're an expert in the used vehicle market, Varaf. What are you hearing there? Well, from the used vehicle market, there too, between that and COVID, uh, there's been a huge shortage in terms of availability of good good used vehicles. So mm-hmm. dealers are scrambling right now to try to fill up their lots, and in so doing, um, they're bidding the prices up whenever they get a good opportunity. Now, that's typically happening at the wholesale and, and dealer auction level. Usually when somebody goes in to trade in their vehicle, they're still getting a, a fairly low value uh, on that. But if you're able to sell it privately um, and find a retail buyer for it, the retail buyers are being conditioned to pay more for it. Okay, interesting. Now, when you've got a shortage like that and you've got dealers competing to fill up their lots, like you say, and get that supply of vehicles, does that turn into like a fierce competition among the among the dealers themselves? They're trying to outbid each other. Yeah, a lot of times okay. at the auctions, what's happening is that you're getting almost retail prices at the auction wow. for 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 used vehicles. Wow. 
Whereas normally, you know, you'd be paying several thousand dollars less at the auction as a dealer, bringing it into your inventory and have that margin. Um, unfortunately, that just is not existing anymore. So the whole motivation now is, you know, we're not going to go towards getting a ton of vehicles because we just don't have the availability. So therefore, we have to negotiate less, if any. And so they're sticking firm to their asking prices and not doing as much negotiation um, for a uh, for consumer who's walking in. Okay, speaking of Varaf Baliwala, Auto Mall Network, he's a car buying expert. So Varaf, what, what type of cars and vehicles are, are hot out there right now? Let, let's say on, on the market, like are, are a lot of people still looking for trucks and SUVs? Is that, is that still hot? Uh, yes, certainly there is. Um, right now, I'll tell you, Toyotas seem to be, you know, getting a lot of demand, but nobody can fulfill that demand. Hmm. Um, because again, a lot of the Toyota vehicles, especially their hybrids and stuff are, are heavily based on the technology and the chips because of that, they're not able to get a hold of them. Um, you have, uh, certainly the trucks and whatnot are also very, very popular, but the electric vehicles are starting to become very popular as well. So more and more people are looking towards that because, of course, you're starting to see an increase in prices of uh, gas. Um, and so that's also a concern, right? Yeah, the, the electric and hybrid models are really attractive, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, is there a good used used vehicle market for electrics and hybrids? Um, yeah, I think there is. Uh, in right. fact, we've just got, uh, we've got a client who's bringing um, their e-golf to us. Uh, yeah. 2018 Volkswagen e-Golf, and we're going to sell it on uh, through our, our consignment program for them. But uh, we're we're quite eager to to get that into our inventory and to to, to help promote it for them. Okay, find a retail buyer. Now you mentioned that let's say you've got a used vehicle, you're tired of the vehicle you've got, and you want to get up, you want to upgrade. Maybe you want to buy, get into a new vehicle or uh, a newer used car, and you're looking for a trade-in. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you mentioned that. In your experience right now, people still not getting top dollar for a trade-in. Why is that? I mean, if it's such a hot market and they're, and dealers are scrambling to get inventory, why would they not give you a better deal on a trade-in? Well, the whole dealer mentality and model is based on buy low, sell high, yeah. right? So when you're going in to buy a new vehicle, once you've committed to that new vehicle, you're locked into that dealer in order to get a trade-in value. It's not like you're able to open that up to the marketplace and, and you know, get the highest market unless you're trying to sell it privately. A lot of people yeah. don't want to sell it privately. They just want the convenience of right. being able to walk into one place. And once your heart is in the new vehicle, you're kind of not as concerned about the, the old vehicle. Yeah, and yeah. No, I can... The dealer, dealer has that bit of an emotional advantage. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I can sort of see the psychology of that for sure. Like, it is a bit of a hassle or a pain to sell a vehicle privately. So maybe people might think, oh, look, I'm just going to unload it at the dealership and be done with it. But would you recommend that if you're looking to leverage, like, the top dollar for your own vehicle, uh, you know, private sale is the way to go? Yeah, we always try to go that route um, through the programs that we've developed uh, for, for our clientele. Uh, we use uh, a, a virtual consignment sort of thing. Let's try to help you find a retail buyer who will then give you a fair bit more uh, for that vehicle. Um, you know, so that way you're getting the best price on on the new purchase, and then getting the maximum for your old. So you're really kind of minimizing any sort of money out of your pocket. Right. Hey, Varafa, you are an expert in helping people get into a vehicle. What are your What would you say is your sort of number one 
tip when you're in the market as a as a buyer? Like, you got to go on to that lot with the mentality that I'm ready to walk here. I mean, you got to be ready to walk away if you don't like the deal you're being offered. Is that like you got to play that kind of hardball? Like, what do you advise people to do? Well, I don't think a lot of people want to really play that hardball. Yeah. I think they would love to be able to just have, you know, a, a, an easygoing experience for it. But if you're really trying to shoot for the best deal, um, then you have to be willing to walk away. Yeah. Right. And it's a bit of a different game as well for new car versus used car. So on used cars, it's a whole different mentality when you walk into that dealership to try to negotiate a price there versus trying to negotiate the price on a brand new vehicle. Why is it different? Well, it just is. Uh, when you're when you're dealing with new vehicles, um, there's you, there's enough of an ample supply in most cases, so that if somebody wants to get a 2021, you know, Honda Honda Civic, for example, um, I can you know the dealer is able to sell not just one, but he's got multiple that he's got access to. Yeah. On a used vehicle, you've only got one of each. Right. Right? So trying to negotiate on a one-off type item that, that you have access to versus trying to negotiate on, on something that they've got a skew of X number of them, it's yeah. just a whole different approach to doing the negotiations. I took a look at a new vehicle the other day, Varaf, for your thoughts, and I, I looked at the, the financing on it, and I, I also looked at the leasing options on it, and the lease... I've never leased a car because I always thought it was kind of, I didn't like the math on it. I just thought it was a bad deal. But, you know, I can see how it can be attractive to get into a new vehicle without big financial outlay. Would you ever recommend to someone to lease a vehicle or is that always just a mistake you should buy? I personally try to, you know, encourage people to buy as opposed to lease. Yeah. Um, leasing people are typically getting into lease because they want a new vehicle with minimal ongoing monthly payment. So they've set their, their mind up that, okay, for the rest of my life, I'm going to pay X amount of dollars per month and, and not have to worry about it. At least when you're buying, you're building a little bit of equity, even though it's kind of negative equity as because these things are depreciating. Right. But at the end of the lease term, you have nothing to show for it. You just hand it in and walk it, walk away. Whereas if you're buying, at the, once that thing is paid off, well, it's yours, and you don't have to necessarily be forced into a, a selling solution and getting into another one. All right, welcome back. Talking about a red-hot new and used car market with Varaf Baliwala. He is a car-buying expert, Auto Mall Network. Tons of phone calls here. Let's go right to them. Pat in White Rock. Hey, Pat. Good morning. I just went through this buying experience. I bought a uh, 2019 Lexus from a North Shore dealer, and they were going to offer me a very low price for a almost collector car that I had. There's only two others in Canada available for sale. It was a 2012 Cross Tour in mint condition. Anyway, I ended cool. up selling the uh, the old car to a dealer on uh, Vancouver Island for $3,000 more than the dealership was going to give me for a trade-in. Oh, in- interesting. What kind of car was it again, did you say? Uh, the old one was a 2012 uh, Honda Cross Tour, which is a pretty rare car. Oh, Honda Cross Tour. Okay. So, Varaf, that's very interesting. Is Does it pay to shop around maybe before you sell? Well, it depends on whether you're motivated by the the, buy, the, the vehicle you're about to buy yeah. versus the motivated by the, the one you're willing to sell. 
Yeah. If you're able to sell it as a separate transaction, you're always going to end up with more money in your pocket. Yeah, and it sounds like that's what Pat did. Good for you, Pat. Let's go to Stuart on the line in Vancouver. Hey, Stuart. How's it going? Good. Go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to say I bought a 2021 F-150, uh, and the way I kind of operate my business, it's just a, uh, a tax write-off. I'm self-employed, and so I usually just lease for two years because I put a lot of kilometers on my vehicles uh, with my business. And I ordered it last June, so June of 2020, and I was just talking to the guy at the Ford dealership for yesterday, and he says it's not even through the factory yet just because of the whole semiconductor shortage. Oh, man. Okay, so it's delayed. Right. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I don't know if you've seen the photos of uh, like the Kentucky Speedway with just you know, 20,000 Ford uh, trucks all lined up there. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Okay, Varaf, this sounds give, like a... Go ahead, Varaf. Can I give you a word of advice? Yeah. Don't, don't lease, even though you're, even though you're doing it for business, um, your depreciation on a vehicle is actually going to be much greater than what your lease payments are going to be. So you're going to be able to take advantage of better write-offs if you actually purchase the vehicle, but then you're not limited also in the end where you know you're capped off at X number of uh, kilometers. So then you're free to sell it or, or trade it whatever okay. you want uh, without having those restrictions. Okay, Stuart. Good luck with that. Let's squeeze in some more calls here. Vince in Vancouver. Hey, Vince. I um, hi. I just want to say I um, I, I bought a 2019 uh, Tacoma uh, last week. And it's crazy. I, I've actually bought three vehicles in the last couple of years, and it's crazy how the how the used market uh, they they hold their value, especially like you were saying, Toyota. Toyota is I don't understand why they're. I mean, I realize that they're really in demand, like people like the, the trucks and everything, but uh, you can buy a, a used one for almost uh, a brand new one. Like I, okay. I, I bought a nineteen. I bought a nineteen for almost what I could have paid for a brand new one. Okay, Vince, thanks for the call. Varaf, we just got 30 seconds left. So, yeah, Toyota seems to hold their value. Would you agree? Uh, it's a huge branding uh, uh, branding exercise that they've done, and they've, you know, they, they hold their value because primarily the perception of, hey, it's a Toyota. Okay, Varaf, we got a ton more calls here, but we're out of time. We'll just have to have you back on. Simple as that. Thanks for coming on today. All right, thank you. I'll be glad to. All right, welcome back to the show. Fight that ticket now. Have you ever received a traffic ticket you thought was unfair? Can you fight back and beat the rap? Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee. Kyla is a lawyer with Acumen Law. She specializes in traffic cases, and I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Okay, thanks for being here. Some interesting case law to just briefly talk about here, Kyla. There's always some interesting judgments coming down that you're paying attention to all the time. Including like the uh, evolving law, case law around distracted driving. So tell me about the driver who was ticketed for using, was it a CB radio? Yes, it was a CB radio. She was okay. a delivery driver and she used it to communicate with her dispatcher. It had a handheld microphone that was attached to a cord um, and the cord connected to the actual radio, which played the audio through the car. So she would speak into the microphone, but she would hear any responses or any information through the actual vehicle itself. Right. And she got ticketed for distracted driving for using it? She did. And she fought her ticket in court and lost on the basis of uh, the court concluding that she had uh, violated the law by using a handheld microphone finding that a CB radio was a handheld microphone. Right, but then did she, did she get a turnaround and appeal? Did she, or what happened yes. there? 
Yes, she did appeal. And on appeal, the B.C. Supreme Court overturned the conviction and found that uh, a CB radio does not qualify as a handheld microphone under the legislation and is not uh, an electronic device because it doesn't broadcast the audio out of the microphone part. Oh, my goodness. Okay. You know, a lot of people used to have CB radios like a long time ago, okay? Back at like Smokey and the Bandit, you know, 10-4, good buddy. There was like a CB radio craze. You're much too young to remember this, Kyla, but uh, not many people have CB radios these days. This was an exception. But what the heck is the difference between holding a microphone of 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 like a walkie-talkie style radio in your car and holding your cell phone? Like, how is that any different? There really is no significant difference. The only difference that I can see is that the the microphone itself is connected via a wire to the vehicle. And so if you dropped it, it doesn't pose a risk of like jamming the brake or something like that. But otherwise, it doesn't appear to have much logic to it, um, that arbitrary prohibition. Okay, let's talk about the case you're highlighting on uh, the delay. So a guy got a ticket tried to fight it because of undue delay getting having the court the court adjudicated right what happened there uh, well, he lost his argument that the ticket had been unreasonably delayed. The court found that the delay due to COVID um, and when the courts were shut down obviously had to be subtracted. But then they also added another four months after the courts were shut down, factoring in this idea that uh, that all the cases that had been adjourned during that period had to be rescheduled ahead of his. So they essentially prioritized the charter rights of everybody else who wasn't making the argument ahead of this individual who was saying my rights were violated by this process. Okay, what kind of ticket was it? What was the offense there? I I believe it was just a speeding ticket. It wasn't something complicated. Okay, and how long, like what was the delay here? How long Uh, did it last? The court found that the delay was uh, fifth, well, well it, was over, it was 19 months initially, and then subtracting the amount of time the courts were shut down, it was 15 months. And then when they subtracted more time from that, it was a little under a year to get him to a court date. Right, and that's and and that's allowable. That's not considered undue delay. It's not, although huh. there are a number of judgments where where judges sitting in in these applications have said it is itself ridiculous that it has to take a year to get a 15-minute hearing on a traffic ticket. Yeah. So what do you think about that as like a defense lawyer, that you can have a delay that long in a ticket and it would still be valid, still go forward? I mean, it's frustrating because yeah. with tickets, unlike other, you know, unlike other offenses, um, you know, there's all these consequences that come along with the ticket and your ability to to remember, you know, driving through a stop sign is much lower than your ability to remember, for example, uh, the time that you were arrested by police um, and accused of shoplifting. Right. The, the, mm. the inherent prejudice in that amount of time is much greater, in my opinion. Okay, here's another one for you, Kyla, for your thoughts. Distracted driving. Now, we all know, everyone knows talking on a cell phone is illegal, and a lot of people are getting burned for distracted driving tickets for a cell phone, but distracted driving can take many forms. So we had West Shore RCMP pulled over a driver after a complaint of the vehicle being driven erratically. West Shore RCMP posting on social media that the driver was actually removing her bra while driving and could that be distracted driving like there's lots of different things can be considered distracted driving i guess 
Yes, and that wouldn't be like a cell phone ticket that you would expect to get. It's, it wouldn't be the same charge as that. Uh, it would be a charge for driving without due care and attention under okay. Section 144 of the Motor Vehicle Act, the penalty for which is worse than a distracted driving ticket. Oh, how much is the fine for that? It's also a $368 fine, but there are six penalty points associated oh. with it. Compared to, what are the penalty points for a cell phone infraction? Four. Four, Okay. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Like, what other type of distracted driving penalties or, or undue care and attention? Like, what if you're eating behind the wheel? I've often had callers ask me that. Like, what if you're eating, like, a you know, a Big Mac while you're driving? Could that be a ticket? It could be. It would depend on the circumstances. You know, if you're stopped at a red light and you pick up the Big Mac off the passenger seat and have a few bites, you're probably not going to get a ticket. But if you've got it in one hand and you're, you know, wiping your face with the other and driving with your knees, you're going to get a ticket. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe that sounds rather warranted, actually, perhaps. But <laughs> in your experience, we're going to take a few phone calls here in a sec, but in your experience as a defender in court, what type of traffic infractions are the toughest to beat? Like when you have a client come to you and say, look, I think this ticket is unfair and I want to fight it in court. In your experience, what what infractions are the, what's the toughest rap to beat, would you say? Excessive speeding is really yeah. hard to beat because they, the, the fence is going 40 kilometers an hour or more over the speed limit. And if you're going that fast, it's usually pretty obvious that you're speeding. Like you don't need to be trained or qualified to go, that person is excessively speeding. Right. And what about, okay, distracted driving. If you got a client comes to you and says, I've been, I've been ticketed for distracted driving for using my cell phone. Is that pretty tough to beat too? Or can you defeat those tickets in court? I mean, they are all all winnable, um, but, you know, if it's a case where you're obviously holding your phone to your ear or obviously texting while you're waiting at a red light, those are really hard. It's the more ambiguous cases where there's some doubt about what the officer observed or some break in continuity that become much more difficult to beat. But distracted driving can be very hard to beat because sometimes it's just so obvious. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking traffic tickets with Kyla Lee. Your calls to her 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Chris and Langley. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Um, So I've had a few uh, distracted driving tickets, uh, quite a few, actually. Every one of them sitting at a a red light or at one in particular was at a train sitting there for 10 minutes. Train is not moving. I'm not moving. Um, reason I'm getting these tickets uh, for the for the information is the is that I'm a courier, same as that other lady that appealed. I have mm-hmm. a uh, app on my phone is uh, like a, a walkie-talkie. It's called Z- Z- Zello, I think it's called. It's a one-button kind of same idea. It's, uh, it comes through my my car uh, in the speaker, but uh, I have to press the button to talk just like a CB radio. Same idea. But my my, my question here is is that I understand driving while using your phone is as dangerous as drinking and driving. We've cracked down. I think that crackdown has actually caused people to take the phone in front of them and put it down to their lap and actually made things more dangerous. But I'd like to ask mm. her opinion on the fact that I'd say the majority, I'd, I'd go and fetch a guess that 90% of the tickets given out are to people who are in stationary vehicle, not moving, and I'd like to see any evidence that that, in fact, is dangerous. Driving, sure, moving vehicle, absolutely, 100% agree. But sitting at a red light, looking at a, at a phone that we're addicted to and some of us have to use for work uh, and, and then to be dinged like we're drinking and driving or we're, we're as dangerous as, I think there's a disconnect there and, and we're, we're lumping them all together. I, I think uh, could be a distraction uh, to the, the cars behind us and, and prevent right. people from moving in a flow of traffic. So maybe there is a fine, but I don't think it should be as, as, as high as okay. somebody who's actually traveling in a vehicle. 
Okay, Chris, thanks for the call. Kyla, what do you think of that? I mean, I think I've, I've told you before, Mike, that I, I agree. I don't think that the fine and the penalties always reflect the dangerousness of the behavior. And for using a phone at a red light or waiting 20 minutes for a train, the risk that you're posing to the public is very small compared to actually being on your phone while your vehicle's in motion. Right. And that's where do they, is that where they catch most people? Like, are most people ticketed for distracted driving while they're stopped at a light or whatever? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The police walk up and down at red lights and, and yeah. hand out tickets like candy. Yeah. Okay. David in Vancouver. Hey, David. Hey, just a quick tip. Uh, my suggestion, and it works for me and many other people I've told about, don't go on the scheduled date that they've stamped at the bottom of the ticket. A uh, month or two before, send a letter uh, requesting a different date, and there's a good chance the officer will not show up. Therefore, they cannot uh, go through with the ticket. Ooh, Kylo, what do you think of that? <laughs> Uh, they're getting better systems in place now to make sure that officers don't miss dates, especially where matters have been adjourned. So I'm not sure how well that that continues to work. Like in your experience, does the the ticketing officer usually show up? Like I remember somebody telling me, anytime you get a ticket, just dispute it because half the time the cop doesn't show up and they throw the ticket out. But I don't think that's true, or is it? It's not true anymore. They actually did an audit several years ago of, of the attendance rates of police officers and saw that it was bad, and the police got in trouble, so they changed their systems. They now book multiple tickets for the same officer at once, um, and officers can be disciplined if they don't show up for their court date without a good reason. Okay, Meredith on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hey, just a quick thing, uh, a couple of things. That With that, uh, they phone the officers now, I have heard, when they're not in court, and they can testify by phone. I don't know if that's true. Is but that correct, Kyla? It is, yes. Okay. Um, the the thing that happened to me is I was I went through a camera light, a camera photo, and it was actually not my fault. I had to evade a, a pedestrian. But if mm. you get the picture, it all they're trying to do is get the license plate. But if you get the photo, it only covers that area. So if you can identify a region to the right where there's no camera picture on the road... That's what happened. The pedestrian walked out in front, and then he walked back, but you couldn't see it on the picture. Because, oh, okay. So you got it was a red light camera. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. was the other thing is if you're a lot of it's based on the the their reading of your speed as well. So you just say, oh, I've got a diff. I I always drive below the speed limit. It must be a different calibration on my my mechanism of measurement than yours. <laughs> Okay, thank you for the call. Kyla, okay. these um, these automated cameras and intersections, they got red light cameras, they got speed cameras, are, 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 and you get the ticket in the mail. Can you beat those? You can. Um, she raised a good example of a circumstance where it was something called a necessity argument, where in order to avoid hitting and potentially killing a pedestrian, she had to go through the red light. That would be a defense to a red light camera ticket. But would the judge buy that? It depends how you hold up under cross-examination. Because oh. <laughs> the officer isn't there at the time, there's not much evidence to counter your version of events. And as she said, not everything's depicted in the image. And, and who's going to grill you under cross-examination, like a crown <laughs> attorney? Is that, is that the deal? No, there's an intersection enforcement officer, so somebody Ooh. who just comes and, and testifies about red light cameras. Oh, wow. What are they like? Are they tough? They are very tough to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they are. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Call in a North Van. Hi. Hi. You struck a chord with the commercial band radios. I'm retired from the taxi industry for a few years, but back in that day, as it were, police, fire, 
ambulance, taxi drivers, truckers, commercial drivers, couriers, all used the microphone to yeah. contact with their, their dispatchers. And there were zero to none distracted driving accidents, zero, zero to none uh, incidences of, of, of what's going on today since the advent of the cell phone. So the, uh, it's, um, I don't know what it is, but it's not the use of a microphone that causes accidents because, like, from... Uh, Days when, whenever radio came out in the 1930s or whatever it is, comp- uh, radio controlled uh, dispatch came out, and that went on for years and years, zero uh, to none incidents. Okay, what do you think I of that? Kyle? I mean, neither is the time for people who've had tickets, but I just wanted to make that comment. Okay, thanks, Colin. What do you think of that, Kyla? Well, I think it's it's evidence of the fact that you can learn how to adapt to having a distraction in your vehicle. You know, police, ambulance, all, all these organizations still use electronic devices while driving. They have exceptions. Um, that allow them to do their jobs and do them safely. Um, and, and I think our law needs to catch up to where people are at and maybe be a little bit more expansive to allow people to learn how to safely have conversations in their vehicle that may involve sometimes tapping the screen of your phone to accept a courier job if you're, you know, if you're doing an Uber Eats thing or something like that that doesn't amount to a distraction that poses a risk to the public. Okay, let's go to Scott in Maple Ridge. Hi, Scott. Yeah, you know, don't get too hung up on the CB thing, but there, there, is an, there is an exemption. The government has a pamphlet on the website for mobile transmitters that are installed. So I'm baffled how this made it as far as it did. Um, and also the difference for you two is that a microphone is a half-duplex conversation. A telephone is a full-duplex conversation that requires your full attention when you're listening and talking at the same time. So I, I'm, I, have, I carry around a piece of paper just in case I run into Officer Friendly, who isn't aware of the exemption, but there is. So oh, okay. that so far? That's very interesting uh, point, Scott. Thank you for that. Kyla, we have 30 seconds. Like, How did that get all the way to the Supreme Court of B.C.? Unfortunately, the distracted driving law is really poorly written. It's incredibly confusing. And even traffic court justices and police officers enforcing the law don't understand the limits and don't understand what is and what is not distracted driving. Okay, well, that's always, that's why it's always good to get good legal advice. Kyla, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me.